I know there's been something on your mind. I have been trying to step outside my comfort zone, like little baby steps. Race for impact! Challenge myself. Ideas! Go. Get inspired. Okay. Yes! <laughs> so fun. Today is about the very future of Starfleet. The anomaly has ignited old and new fears alike. So, typical day. Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith and joining me on the bridge. This is Tyler Orton, you know, just embalming my dead uncle. The card shark, Cam. <laughs> and we're here this week to catch up with Star Trek Discovery Season 4. With uh, We're going to look at Episodes 2 through 4. A little bit of a different format for tackling Discovery, but possibly the way we tackle Discovery going forward. <laughs> possibly, possibly. Cam, that embalming moment, that is the stuff that I live for, where it's so outrageous. Uh, I, I can't even wrap my head around it. I, is this a cultural practice that I'm just like unaware of, where maybe sometimes you snap you know, thumbs off your dead relatives? I was questioning that. I was like, is this a thing? And it's like insensitive to be like questioning it. I have absolutely no idea. Um, someone write us in, write, write us, you know, the answer to that one. Because I was wondering as well, is it like maybe something from an alien culture? I, I've i never heard of it. All, that's all I can say. It just doesn't it seem too specific for it to just kind of be made up? Like, it, it, in, yeah. you know, he was talking, and this is Culber talking about his uh, Tito uh, Césaire. Like, so, um, I don't know. Maybe it is, like, uh, kind of something in Latin culture that I've just been completely unaware of. But I, I, I can't imagine having, like, like taxidermy, like, a, a relative like I would a pet that that's all I, and maybe I'm just, I'm just culturally insensitive I don't know yeah I, I felt the same way like I was like I feel like this is probably just something I haven't heard of um how has this not just like been shown in a movie at some point or something like it just seems like something I have a hard time believing discovery would be the first pop culture um you know storytelling to bring this to my attention it's breaking new ground every day cam and we don't even know it <laughs> Well, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, Cam, we are like one third of the way through season four at this point. Uh, maybe we can give like our overall thoughts and where it goes, and then we'll cover it episode to episode. We have episode two, which is the anomaly. We've got episode three, which is choose to live. And we've got episode four, which of course is all is possible. So, Cam, we'll go through them one by one, but let's kick it off with our thoughts about the first third of the season. I'm feeling conflicted so far in that the writers seem to be pursuing what we asked them to this entire time, and that you put your ongoing arc more in the background, you know, the, the mysteries over the Red Angel or the Burn, those kinds of things. Those shouldn't necessarily be your A story every single episode. Because that way you can kind of mitigate against the possibility of your season-long arc or, or your mystery not being very compelling, which I think last season especially suffered from. And, you know, if those payoffs to those mysteries, if they don't really land, you know, or maybe they kind of landed with a thud last season and everything leading up to that isn't so great, 
I don't know. It, it just it harms the season overall, even if there are great character moments or or story beats all within that. Now the problem I'll, I'll say for season four, or at least for the last two episodes, is that these A stories, whether it's ninja nuns or Navarre politics, hmm. they just feel a little listless to me. And it's actually like two episodes in a row where it's like the shape ship based stuff involving Culber that I've actually been more interested in, in than like the A or the B stories. But what, what's your overall takeaway on the first third of season four? Um, pretty much a similar track or trek, perhaps. Um, but I really did appreciate um, that they seem to be putting the arc in the background because, yeah, as you said, that's something we've complained about endlessly. And like, it's one thing when your, you know, arc is really compelling. You know, there's plenty of serialized shows where the central arc is that interesting that you just want to hang on and follow it. But like Discovery, that hasn't been its strong suit. So like the idea of making something like the um, the burn last season at the forefront just didn't work. And I really felt like this was a step in the right direction in terms of focus. But like it felt a little bit like Enterprise where season one, they're like, OK, we have kind of run the Star Trek format into the ground with, you know, obviously all these years of Voyager and TNG and DS9. People have gotten tired of the same old type of storytelling. We're taking it back. We're doing a prequel. We're making Star Trek sexy again. We're doing all that stuff. Now, here's some episodes just like everything you've watched before. And, like, yeah. it felt like Discovery was doing what we'd kind of like to see. But there was nothing about the stories, particularly in the second one we'll talk about today, that grabbed me at all. Um, I thought the most recent episode, episode four, was a closer step in the right direction. But I kind of appreciate they're making baby steps towards something that at least works maybe a little more for me personally but they're not there yet okay well cam let's start off with the anomaly i think we need to get into a discussion about saru in which he is back on discovery he's captain he he's first officer which you know there's precedent for that we've seen that with say star trek the motion picture in which deckard was a captain but he was also first officer under one admiral kirk um, I understand the precedent, but in terms of where this is going for the character and what it means for his journey, I- I'm incredibly disappointed with that. And like, I-, I think at a certain point, if you make the decision that he's not going to be your captain anymore, you need to take him off the ship. You need to give him something compelling to do. I would have loved it had they brought in like a new, you know, first officer, you know, uh, maybe somebody from the 32nd century, inject some new life into this. The problem is, is that Saru's character arc since season one is building up to him becoming captain. That's what we got last season. But it was always on this collision course with Michael Burnham's, you know, arc. Like, she was always on that similar sort of ascent, or at least we could kind of predict that's what her trajectory was going to be. So, I I don't know. What what is he supposed to do now, Cam? Like, is he perpetually going to be, you know, the first officer aboard Discovery? Like, I, I don't think so. I think he'll have to move on after the season. But it's just like, it, it it makes me think that the show doesn't really want to pull the trigger on the things that they want to do. Like, they finally got rid of Ash Tyler after two seasons, but it was two seasons of them realizing, like, as much as maybe we like the actor, um, this character just isn't working out. And I, I think it's tough where, you know, I, I get it. Sometimes a character is compelling, but if you've made a decision to kind of uh, just from the logistics of storytelling to, to kind of put that character in a different corner, then you have to follow through. And I, I just found his decision not to go take the captaincy of the sojourner, like just kind of annoying. And, and I get his motivation because he wants to be there to support Burnham. 
but the writers could have done something else with this particular uh, decision making on his part. I made a note that just says in all caps, first Kelpian captain. <laughs> <laughs> that lasted, what, three months? Yeah, well, it just shows you, though, that, like, that is a big deal. You look at the backstory of Saru, which a lot of Star Trek characters, we don't get the backstory we got with Saru. We really got to look at what his life was like before. And think of the journeys this character has made. And it's like, okay, your job is to basically play support for Burnham throughout her story. And it's like, this character, like, of you know, Saru, not necessarily on screen as to how they've showcased him, but in terms of just the journey this character in theory has gone on, that is a incredibly compelling character. And it just feels like they're robbing this character of that because this show has been envisioned as being led by one specific character. You know, you look at TNG, Picard's the lead character, but you've got an episode where Geordi saves the day and the episode's all about Geordi, or Troy has episodes... Whereas here, there's nothing they can really give Saru to do on an ongoing basis that allows him to be presented in a stronger light than Burnham. So, I mean, there was an episode, I don't remember if it was this one or the following episode, where they're referring to him as Mr. Saru. And it's like, yep, he's Mr. Spock. Like, that is going to be his role and we're going to wedge him in there. The one thing I do wonder is, by the time we get to the end of Discovery... If, like, Burnham becomes, like, the new Federation president or something and Saru gets Discovery. Okay. I, I'm still going to be frustrated if that's if that's what the finale entails. But just this obsession with uh, maintaining the status quo, I, I it just makes me roll my eyeballs. Like, well, okay, let's say it's the TNG era and uh, Riker becomes captain because Picard needed to take a big, long break after becoming Locutus of Borg, you know? And then what if Picard comes back and he's the number one? You know, isn't it just kind of awkward? And just even having the opportunity for, say, Picard to question Riker's judgment or other characters maybe taking the side of Picard in certain captain-making decisions, it, it's just, it, it, it's such a strange dynamic and something kind of uncomfortable, like, in terms of why they want to pursue this. Like, they want to pursue this because they really like Doug Jones and they really like the Saru character, but there should have been something else, you know, maybe we'll get into it, but I don't know, maybe Saru could have been teaching at Starfleet Academy, for instance. I mean, I think there's something a little bit interesting in that they set these two characters up as sort of squabbling siblings under Giorgio, as sort of the mother figure, and now with Giorgio gone they um, are sort of now in more of a supportive situation. So they're willing to, I mean, in this case, Saru's willing to take the back seat to support Burnham. I think there's something interesting there, but the show is also not presenting them on equal planes. It's very much Burnham over Saru. So it feels like a good idea that just doesn't quite work dramatically because of the focus of the show. Okay. Well, Cam, I also want to talk about the transition storyline uh, with regards to what mm -hmm. Gray is going through. And that I, I, I'm getting... Um, like feeling mixed in this because it's such an important story to tell and it's too important for the writers to mess up because I, I think about the young people that would be going through this sort and like this is very obviously kind of an allegory for you know uh, people that are, are going through their own like uh, gender transitions here in real world earth and we, we see Gray going through his own transition into a synthetic body and I think about those young people that, that would be having those same feelings as they're going through this process here in the real world, or, or how it could be helping older trans Trekkies process their own experiences. This is a very important storyline that, that Star Trek really hasn't tackled in such a way. But they, they, 
the frustration here is they still haven't addressed kind of the constitution of gray. And there's so many lingering questions about gray. You know, like, consciousness is stuck to Adira. Why? How? I, I don't know. The writers don't seem as if they ever want to explain it. I, I think this sort of stuff matters. Uh, it's kind of like very bizarre that they did not even address this by the end of last season. Like, what if um, last season uh, did not end with any sort of revelations about the burn? Like, what if we didn't know how the burn was going to end? Or, or what, what I would the have preferred that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> That's true. Uh, you know, but, but there's also just these weird lingering questions uh, about, like, where does Grey go when he's not around Adira? Does Grey have permission to just pop up in front of Adira at any time? Do, do they have some sort of kind of agreement or arrangements um you know and i'm just kind of like is gray a security risk aboard <laughs> aboard these vessels mm -hmm. where like you know a deer gets to walk around as an ensign and has access to all this uh proprietary and secure information and no one starfleet seems to understand what the constitution of gray is or at least they're not interested in addressing that so maybe gray is a security threat but the fact that they're not answering these very vital questions um it, maybe it's because the writers already know but they haven't actually had any characters address the answers there or or question what the constitution might be it's just there and it's the similar problem that we had with the red angel in season two is like well, we were just told the Red Angel is important, but they never explained why the Red Angel was important. It's just Pike saying, Starfleet needs to, us to investigate these signals immediately. And we're like, the writers knew why, but they never explained it to the audiences why. But I don't know. What's your takeaway on, on this uh, gray transition storyline as they've depicted it so far? It's frustrating, as you said, due to the lack of explanation as to what's going on, especially when you have a character like Guardian Z who pops up in this one. There's no reason you couldn't have had a brief scene with Guardian Z throughout last season to sort of explain what's going on with Grey. Like, we're not asking for an entire episode built around this, although I would have appreciated one. It would have helped. But you just have to give a little bit of explanation to guide the audience to understand exactly what's going on. It would have been important. Um, as for, the, like, the story itself, like, I think it's really important that Star Trek did this. And I remember... Quite a while back on this podcast, we were talking about Star Trek's place in pop culture uh, now, which was probably like 2017 or 18, versus the past. And I think I said something along the lines of, I don't think Star Trek will ever be bold in its sort of progressive messaging again, because now it is such a expensive property that um, it's going to have to play it safe. Whereas in 66, it was an unknown quantity and they could be a little more risky. And I look at this episode... I see the rating bombings going on on things like IMDb, and I do give CBS and Paramount big props for saying, we're putting this out there, we you know stand behind our actors, we stand behind the story, and we don't care what anyone thinks. Because I genuinely didn't necessarily expect that from a franchise this, you know, this major nowadays. And, and that's what makes it even more frustrating, is because I, I think they are, are treading on kind of messing the storyline up. And I, I wonder how this storyline is going to age in that when, you know, because uh, let's be honest, if this storyline was made like you know, 30 years ago, th there's no way it would ever air on TV. And the fact that we can get this on TV, um, tell these stories that had never been told before, that that's important. But I, I'm very fearful about how well it is going to be remembered 
you know, in how they handle all this. And I, I, I hope for the best, but I think one of the issues that we're still going through with, with Grey the character is it's pretty much Saint Grey. There are yeah. no there are no flaws with this character. Although I did get a laugh where when Adira said, Being there for people has always been your thing. And I kept thinking about you know, remember last season when Grey <laughs> disappeared without explanation for like five episodes in a row and that really hurt Adira's feelings? I was like, huh. Yeah. Okay, so maybe that's Gray's flaw. I don't know. But it's like, I just, I, I hope they stick the landing. They haven't done anything super egregious. It's mostly um, kind of like more narrative sticking points that, that uh, makes me concerned. I, I, I just, I, I'm getting less and less convinced that they are necessarily going to uh, stick the landing here. You know, I, uh, I'm just a little concerned. That's all. Is it... <sighs> Is it really possible for them to really stick the landing in a big way when you're kind of shuttling this to like your B or C story, depending on how you're looking at this episode? Like this does feel like the sort of thing that should have been the focal point of an episode. I know, you know, and I, I but I do appreciate that. Yeah, you know, well, yeah, that that's actually a good question. Like, should this entire storyline from where what we've seen from episode one through four, in which Gray is going through this transition, should that have just been? Uh, episode two or three should it just have been the a story or is it better that they are having this take place over a longer period of time and i i know it's only four episodes they all probably take place within a a six week time period but i wonder if that kind of showcases like maybe um how a transition isn't like an immediate thing you know if it was a tng era you'd have a transition episode and that would be it they never really address it again so i i i feel a little conflicted because uh, i can see both sides of the, the the argument for pursuing it narratively this way yeah i just wonder if we should have had a more focused episode on the transition and yeah. we could deal with like the all the stuff leading up to it and out of it. But it just feels like the way that it kind of wedges some of these sorts of stories into kind of backup stories to support the main one, it's like, oh, like I feel like that's a bit of a miscalculation, especially when you look at just the history of Star Trek where you'd have your A story and then the B story was usually something kind of minor, like, I don't know, Jordy trying to solve a gravitational anomaly or something like that. And this feels too major to put behind you know the book and story here and also like the you know the um saru stuff yeah well uh, speaking of gravitational anomaly cam uh, we're off investigating it this is a uh i would say more of a book centric episode it's um look i appreciate stuff like paul making an effort to you know make small talk and connect with book you know just moments like saying like oh yeah you ever get that uh tingling in your arms when you're using the spore drive you know i, I appreciate that and there's, you know, even by the end that we had like Stamets promising to solve this for Book after witnessing all of Book's torment. So that informs Stamets' motivation going into the next few episodes about his determination to solve the gravitational anomaly. But I don't know, the grief and torment watching Book go through that, it's like, it almost feels as if the, the writers are trying to do their homework in that like crossing their t's dotting their i's but like taking um a, a traumatic experience very seriously but i also i don't know if they're executing it in a way that i would find as a viewer like something i i don't know if compelling or entertaining is definitely not the word that I, i'm uh looking for but it's not necessarily something that uh hooks into me when i'm watching him kind of sit there 
being mortified, having anger that he is denying, and then suddenly having kind of uh, these delusions of his uh, his nephew. You know, it's it's just like th- this to me was it could have been executed better, knowing what had happened to him, the trauma that he was experiencing. Well, it feels like the live-action modern Trek likes to fall back on, like, grief and torment a lot in its stories. And it's beginning to feel a little one-note where every season it's like, okay, which character is going through torment or grief now? And we've seen seasons where it's like, um, you know, um, Stamets went through it. And then we had Detmer last season. Um, Now we've got Book going through it. And it's like, do the writers enjoy writing this? Like, I don't think I would. I think I'd be like, boy... I got to make this like kind of depressing for an hour. Uh, that's that's fun to write, and it's like, do the actors enjoy this? I have a hard time thinking that they would be that overjoyed, being like, I get to go to work today and be depressed for you know the whole day. Like, I I wish Discovery would maybe look at kind of the spectrum of possibilities for emotional journeys characters could go through that don't necessarily fall back on you know grief and PTSD and what have you. Well, that's the problem. If you have these grief storylines uh, every single season and they're running throughout the season, they do kind of lose their oomph. You know, when you watch, um, you know, 90s Trek, you can have characters dealing with grief and tell like these very compelling stories within 40 minutes. And it actually impacts you more because it's not happening to them week after week after week. What we're seeing back then, at least, was them problem solving. Like think about an episode like uh, Who Mourns for Mourn. You don't have to have Quark, you know, uh, grieving for him to be a compelling character. He, he's problem-solving in, in what's arguably a lighter story, but that's actually far more compelling to me when we have the characters trying to solve problems. And solving problems within, like, a psyche with, with you know, psychological um, issues, which even last season with Detmer, they, they actually kind of resolved it in a very flippant way, and then all she needed to do to get over it was just fly books shuttle really close to um, the Orion-like ship. And I was like, okay, well, there you go. Uh, psychological problem solved. Like, I don't know. So far, I, I look, I, I know this must speak to a portion of viewership out there. I, I, I'm sure that they really appreciate what they're doing here on Discovery. It's just, it's not exactly what I signed up for. And I don't think it's being executed uh, as well as it could be either. As a means of forging like a relationship between Stamets and Book, I'm kind of interested to see where that goes because they're two characters who obviously haven't spent much time together. And that's one of my favorite things is when they start pairing characters together who we don't see together that much. And I thought they were kind of fun here. Um, I'm hoping we can get over this sort of hump and, you know, hopefully get to a next stage of what this relationship could be going forward, as well as, you know, we'll talk about Culber and Book, you know, the episodes we'll cover going forward. But, like, it was just weird that, like, you had lines like um, Stamets referring to himself as his tether, and it's like, we've had this tether motif come up multiple (laughs) times on Discovery. It's a little weird. And also, I I just genuinely was annoyed when Stamets says the reason he never really talked to Book was because you remind me of how helpless I was when it came to him saving, um, you know, Stamets' family. And I'm like, this is all off-screen storytelling. We never had any evidence that Stamets held any sort of grudge, not to reference the cat, but any sort of personal (laughs) grudge against Book. And it's like, don't do that. Like, don't just throw out a line that's very important. Like, this is a... If he had these sorts of feelings towards Book, that's the sort of thing you want to see explored in some facet of the show, not just tossed off as a line to kind of 
retcon why these two characters haven't talked. Well, it Discovery continues to have the uh, the show don't tell problem is they keep telling rather than showing. And, you know, I think they've actually gotten a little better over the past few seasons, but they keep defaulting to this and the kind of almost retconning character motivations. And it just doesn't really ring true and it doesn't feel earned either. Um, But one one thing I did appreciate, though, is I kind of like the despite the success of this mission, uh, there's a futility to it in that they gather the data and they realize, well, how much can the data really tell us if it's just going to set it, if the anomaly is going to set a different course at random, we can't really explain it. And like, I like that moment where they kind of had that realization and then that pullout shot where you uh, go from discovery and then you have this expansive look at this five light year uh, in circumference uh, gravitational anomaly. I, I thought that was a very impressive shot for me personally. Yeah, I have nothing against the anomaly and the way they're exploring it this season so far. It's not something that they're pounding into our heads the way they did with the burn, Um, but at least yet. But I did, you know, kind of roll my eyes when they said something along the lines of the anomaly is like none our galaxy has ever faced in terms of threats. And I'm like, I've heard this a few times before Discovery, Uh, (laughs) a few times now. (laughs) What do you think of the Admiral Picard shutout in sickbay? Um... It was fine. I like that the characters didn't immediately go, you don't know who, you know, Admiral Picard was. He's the man who blah, 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 blah. You know, it's like, I like that they were kind of like, yeah, some guy named Picard. I did kind of, I didn't know what to make of seeing the uh, golem bodies from Picard season one again. It was like, wow, <laughs> I, I just never really thought I would be back here so quickly, but here uh-huh. I am. <laughs> yeah. Um. I don't know. It, like, I kind of cringed when Culber was like, Admiral Picard was his name. Just like, no one talks like that. <laughs> Come on. I do all the time, Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, Cam was his name. He talks like that all the time. Um, By the way, I did appreciate as well that um, Saru referenced staying in touch with Sukal. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Councilman Saru. Councilman Saru. <laughs> There's... There are mentions of Sukal in like this episode and the next one of just random characters being like, "Hey, say hi to Sukal." <laughs> Cam, if um, Sukal gets his own action figure, will you buy a Sukal action figure or any Sukal merchandise at all? Oh, that is a great question. Like as a joke, I would listeners as obviously as a joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would one hundred percent buy a Sukal T-shirt uh, if it was him doing that screaming face. Oh, you have my money. I might buy multiple t-shirts, one for each day of the week. Uh, the action figure? Probably. I would probably buy it too. Okay. Well, I'll put that on your... Uh, I'll, I'll keep that in mind for your next birthday or Christmas gift or whatever. So. Well, now I'm thinking about actually just designing the shirt myself and getting it printed. <laughs> yeah, might as well. Um, is it just that image of him screaming? Yeah, totally. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm trying to... There must be a good Sukal, like... like pun you know like su call you later you know like so, oh yeah yeah him screaming and says su call you later yeah yeah su call of the wild anyway yeah yeah um uh, uh that get smart cone of silence in which uh we had uh burnham get a secure line on with a book um it kind of made me laugh cringe though you know that that talk therapy again i know this means something to somebody out there but when, when we have Burnham drawing out the uh, close your eyes, listen to my voice as the music swells, like those kind of moments. I'm just like, um, it, it, it just comes off as corny rather than uh, 
as significant than I think the the, uh, the creators are trying to make it seem like. Yeah, I like the you know captain partner dynamic of her shifting roles in a crisis situation, but yeah, like Discovery doesn't do anything subtly, and it was it's kind of the ham-fisted approach to this sort of scene. I don't know. I mean, I'm so used to it with Discovery that I don't expect like <laughs> organic. Um, believable dialogue at a certain point. So it's like, well, it didn't bother me too much. I guess I can say that. Wow. Um, <laughs> one last thing that I thought was hammy, and then we can jump over to the next episode, if, unless you have final thoughts here, is that the gravitational sequence where everybody got pulled up on like Peter Pan theater strings and then yeah. dropped down to the ground. <laughs> it looks so dorky. <laughs> like it was, it was just it like, oh no, the anomaly is going to make you break dance like a boss. What shall we do? It's like, this is no Apollo 13 people. And I think maybe they should have realized that uh, going in. They were dancing on the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do know based on the special features of Star Trek Discovery Blu-rays that this is a cast that loves to dance. They, all those bloopers, it's a lot of dancing going on. Yeah, um, what's dorkier, that scene or just the flame panels in the background? Yeah, th- those the, the the propane tanks were obviously full. And <laughs> uh, somebody on Facebook, they had a joke like they'd like to see one of the Lower Decks crews like on the uh, cartoon series, like filling up all the gravel that seems to like be fully, uh, falling out of the, uh, the ceilings as well. And I'm like, yeah, lots of gravel just coming out of the ceiling for no reason. Yeah, it's it's kind of like the um you know the falling glass in generations when Troy is crashing the ship. Um it's like that but worse. Yeah. Uh those, those ship designers uh maybe a little bit too much into the uh stylish sort of uh damage rather than anything that's more practical there as well. Someone needs uh. to someone who's good with computers needs to go and add flame panels and falling gravel to like a uh TNG clip or something like that where it's picard and crew on the bridge <laughs> that'd be fun to watch you know yeah. and, but, but they all have to be in the exact same pattern yes. you know just as like like the, these flame panels are, are clearly timed and that's why it's like we mentioned it uh, in the premiere but it continued on throughout the next three episodes though it's like if the camera lingers on a character long enough you can see that the flame panel is going off like every seven seconds yeah without you know a, a, any sort of break like there, there's no randomness there so it kind of like it looks dorky it's full ramstein concert yeah <laughs> there you go um cam choose to live we've got the quat malats quat milan <laughs> Nicki minaj i forget um yeah but the uh, romulan ninja nuns are back I think the writers think that these folks are way cooler than they actually are, but watching uh, Michael Burnham's 65-year-old astrophysicist mother just kick some ass, that's interesting to watch. I still don't understand why she would choose to hang out in this nunnery rather than spend time with the daughter that she had to like unwillingly abandon, you know, 30 years ago. I that that's never going to really make sense to me. She took an oath so what? I think her daughter would be more important to her. But Cam, I don't know. Like, uh, we, we start to get into this more episodic story in which we have to go find out why this other Quatmalat, Quatmanaj, the nun was stealing dilithium. And I, I, I'm I okay with that idea. I just, I, I never really cared about why, though. But although I will say that those aliens 
those aliens looked fantastic though like when we got the close-ups and they, they look distinct from other aliens we've seen in star trek so that i mean that was something to consider but this one just didn't quite land for me no i it didn't get off on the right foot for me really either where it shows you know the uss credence and there's like the commander walking down the hallways these dilithium thieves beaming and suddenly this guy goes into full martial arts mode and it's like it looked so deeply silly that it really made me reflect on discovery just as a whole where it's very self-serious about itself and incredibly earnest it has no sense of irony about really any of its kind of often operatic emotional moments and yet then they'll have this sort of sequence where it's like a martial arts fight um in a ship that is so cartoony and it's like they don't seem to realize that tonally they're all over the place um and just the entire idea of this character like i, I the mystery aspect of it was okay i didn't mind the idea of bringing the Quatmalot back i did think it was notable we had two episodes in a row that really tied to picard mythology from season one picard but um well, it was, was ultimately season one episode again uh, it was um, Absolute Candor, right? Which set up the Quatmalot. I, I just wanted to ask you that so I could hear you mispronounce uh, Candor once again. Oh, I, did I do it? Did I mispronounce it? <laughs> of course you did. Awesome. Awesome. Good to know. Yeah. Go um, on. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was just being a jerk. <laughs> but, you know, the idea of just kind of further exploring that mythology is okay. I just found, like, ultimately the end game as to where we we're going, where we're sitting on this kind of grungy gray moon slash ship planet thingamajig um trying to thaw out some cryo frozen aliens i was like this feels kind of flat like it doesn't feel like we built to something particularly interesting kind of what i was referring to earlier when i was saying about enterprise being this whole new type of show and then giving you kind of forgettable star trekky stories that's what this felt like with a bit of a dose of silliness mixed in okay but cam (laughs) when when Tilly says to Burnham, as the aliens make their way off this moon ship, she says, uh, they're on the path they were meant to be. You gave them that. <laughs> and then Burnham turns to Tilly. We gave them that. We gave them that. <laughs> I'm like, no one talks like this. What? What? Who's writing this garbage? I have no idea. Like, that's something that I just keep noting with Discoveries. A lot of the dialogue feels awkward. And, I mean, you can look at Original Trek, which has a very stylized... Um, language to it whether it's TNG or the original series um, and everything since then but it feels like Discovery wanted to get away from that sort of language because it is different than what those earlier Star Trek shows were like but what they've stumbled across often just feels very hackneyed as opposed to stylized yeah okay so if you go to the next storyline outside of the jabroni stuff hilarious name by the way um then uh, we're, we're we're following Stamets on Navarre. Cam, how, how do you feel about having to call Navarre or having to call Vulcan Navarre now? I guess I'll get used to it at some point, but it is a little bit of a uh, stumbling block for me often. Okay, I'll I'll, I'll try to keep calling it Navarre. But uh, there there was like kind of a, that <laughs> funny moment there where uh, the Vulcans start meditating on the information that uh, they were provided, and Stamets says, "Science first, nap later." Like that was a, a great <laughs> line right there. But okay, let me ask you this though, because the uh, Vulcan or Navarre president seems to very be very involved with a, uh, a scientific topic that's going on here. And let me pose this. Let's say she's uh, she she's got that mind meld going on, right? 
let's say yeah. it's the you know earth equivalent of a uh interrogation right yeah it, it's not perfect but uh what if you know uh one prime minister justin trudeau was performing interrogations on conservationist truckers from other countries to figure out something to do with climate change cam isn't that a, a little bit um uh, below like the prime minister's pay grade like why would trudeau be doing that cam i have no answer to this why is the president of navarre doing this cam um i why is she even there I guess because they didn't want to create multiple Vulcan characters for the show. It's the, I guess, law... 100%. Of, yeah, law of economy of characters where it's like, we don't want to have three or four Vulcans fulfilling the various functions, so we'll just get this one character to do all of them. It just seems as if this president has nothing on her plate. And, and like, just in terms of scheduling, like, uh, she is, you know, just uh, hanging out. Uh, next episode is very funny when, like, Saru just kind of popped into her living quarters un unannounced. I'm just like, doesn't she have a security detail or anything? <laughs> and we also and uh, we also had Book walking in on the Federation president, the Navarre president, the entire admiralty as well as uh, Starfleet. He just kind of popped in at Starfleet headquarters. This guy is a trucker. He's, he's the equivalent of a trucker, and uh, he just kind of walks in. You know, no security stopping him or anything like that. I'm just like, wow, uh, really do trust this man, don't you? Yeah, it is a little strange. And this episode, like, this story beat kind of graded on me a little bit because it's so much about meeting with the, you know, the Vulcans to talk about solving the anomaly. But we know the anomaly is not going to be solved in this episode, so it feels like wheel spinning for a lot of it because... Clearly, that sort of thing is not going to be really resolved until the point of, I don't know, episode 12 or 13 this season. Yeah, that's totally true. Um, although, you know, we do have moments like your emotional response to factual analysis is highly illogical. That, that's kind of the best Vulcan moment that we've gotten uh, in quite some time. Yeah, and it did give us some catharsis to the book grief story. Um, we still have more of it to come in the next episode, but like, I thought... Uh, look, this whole storyline is something that, like, is not my favorite thing to see in Star Trek. But, like, I, I wouldn't say it's being acted badly. And I thought, like, they pulled off that one little moment of the mind meld fairly well. Like, it, it was not, you know, wonderful. But I appreciated that they at least did what they could with it. <laughs> There's a nicer way to say it. Yeah. <laughs> one of the ongoing arcs so that what we are seeing is how skeptical Burnham is of the Federation president. And we always know that Burnham is always right. Mm -hmm. And the reason why this is awkward is Starfleet is a scientific slash paramilitary organization. And we have a Starfleet officer, a captain of a ship, constantly questioning civilian rule of a military organization. And we actually had to have Vance use this very, very weird analogy about how Burnham, your first chair, but she's the conductor. I'm like, wow, you have to explain democracy and civilian control of the military to a well-educated woman from a thousand years ago. Like, like this is the <laughs> sort of stuff that also makes me cringe when, when I'm watching Discovery. I mean, they're also explaining it to the audience more so than Burnham. But again, that's an awkwardness, right? Like, you shouldn't have to do that. Where It's like when, you know, a character walks in and says to another character, like, you know your brother, the doctor. It's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm aware my brother's a doctor. You know, like, that's a, it's taking that sort of storytelling conceit or that dialogue writing conceit 
and blowing it up even bigger here to where he's essentially explaining something that uh, Burnham would know very well. Well, when I'm out and about and I'm talking about you, I always say, well, you know, Cam, my friend, the Star Trek podcaster, always <laughs> introduce you like that. Of course, yes. Yeah, but the broader issue I'm getting at, though, is that um, the way that Star Trek has always kind of depicted kind of uh, civilian rule is that like those guys are kind of dopes you know like starfleet's always going to be right in the end even if an admiral is kind of a rotten apple the captain knows best and with burnham already telegraphing that she knows best uh she's questioning a character the the president who's kind of being depicted uh you know subtly as or at least we're supposed to interpret that she is sketchy Mm. i it's one of those cringe storylines where i'm like okay so the lesson is we uh have to trust burnham's hunch no matter what. And that kind of, I don't think we're in a period of time where uh, democracy should be under attack by, you know, the writers on Star Trek. And I, I don't think that's their intention, but that's what they're getting. And that's why when Ron Moore went forward with uh, the reboot of Battlestar Galactica, he made it his mission to have uh, kind of the, the, the democratic rulers of this fleet be just as important as the military rulers. And you'd see both of them would screw up. And both of them have equal says in what would go on. And, and that it's kind of a balance that we really don't have in Star Trek. And I, I think it's kind of a, a poisonous message that it's sending out to people and that, you know, there, there's kind of this authoritarian bent towards Star Trek that, that we've discussed before in the past. But I don't like where they're going with this storyline with the president, or at least what they're hinting at. Uh, my only hope is they kind of subvert my own expectations and they surprise me where they inevitably or where they will eventually land maybe by the end of the season. Yeah, because I like the idea of the Federation president being a character, um, ongoing character on this show right now, especially with the storyline like we have here where the Federation's been devastated and we have to repair it. I just wish we could look at more of a problem and let that character be someone who maybe there is some headbutting just in terms of strategy or, you know, philosophy about how to do this, but not be portraying it as sort of like, this person may be a villain or maybe they're not, you know, like... I would like to just play them as an individual who's good at their job, but maybe doesn't necessarily agree with how to get the job done with Burnham. That's more interesting to me than what they're doing here where, like, I don't think they're going to go a villain route or anything, but they often portray her in a way that almost gives you mild shades of, like, you know, Kai Wynn or something where you're like, I don't know that I trust this character. And I think right now it would be more interesting to have a character we could trust. Well, I know it's just, we're supposed to be constantly questioning her intentions because our main character is, and and that's what an audience is naturally going to do. And I don't, I just don't think that's the message that we need right now. No. Um, a couple final thoughts, at least for me on this episode, is um, sending Tilly on a combat mission because her craft dinner sucks. Um, interesting choice on the part of the writers. <laughs> uh, I guess uh, you know she needs to get out of her comfort zone for whatever reason. I guess we'll find out more in the next episode. Uh, they give her a sword, and guess what, Cam? She's not trained in it, and she doesn't do very well with her sword. Uh, the, the other thing, I <laughs> this is one of those kind of weird things that I, I'm so OCD that, that I, I need to hash this out and, and kind of get your thoughts on this. But remember when we were watching Gray's synthetic body um, just kind of on the, on the uh, slab there, mm. and it says patient colon Gray, G-R-A-Y. So is his name actually gray, as in the color slash shade, or is it a translation for the word, the trill word for gray, you know, 
Or is it a coincidence that, you know, um, we have such a word in the English language and that's just kind of the transliteration that there's just kind of, it, it just, the trill name just sounds like our word for gray. And it's spelled like that, you know, on the screen. Like, what's your takeaway on this whole gray name uh, thing that I'm obviously getting way too obsessed <laughs> with to uh, a very unhealthy degree? I'm going to assume it's a trill name that just happens to coincide with a English name because I just look at the history of trill characters, you know, Jadzia, Ezri. Um, I, I just, I think Discovery often stumbles. Um, when it comes to just um, keeping continuity with some classic Star Trek stuff, but I, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt that they got this right. Well, I think I, I know the reason why they wanted to do this. Remember we had uh, last season episode uh, Unification 3? Yeah. I think they're setting us up for Shades of Grey 2. <gasps> oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Is that the finale? <laughs> okay i i can't wait that would be the best finale ever is it just a clip show yeah yeah but it's only clips of like this season (laughs) okay i'm down um it all takes place in that real pimping lounge that's um that the discovery crew suddenly has access to it's like a fireplace and everything which i was very impressed by yeah and we got darts back on star trek for i think the first time since ds9 i am down like a dart clown. <laughs> I don't think they ever played darts on uh, Voyager, did they? Oh, what about in, uh, was it Shea Sandrine? That's what I'm wondering. Or was it just pool? I think it was just pool there. And I don't think we saw darts on Enterprise. I don't think. I don't think so. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. Now, one last thing about Gray. Now, I think an interesting storyline, one that would be incredibly problematic, and I'm not suggesting that they do it, but just something that got me thinking more in the sci-fi sense is it, look... His consciousness is transferred into a synthetic body. What happens if, like, this synthetic body starts having problems? You know, like, I, I, I like, what if, like, I don't know, fingers fall off or it can't process um, certain colors, you know, on the spectrum, that sort of thing? I think it's way too problematic because what you're saying is, like, uh, the, the, this trans character is in a new body and this body it, it keeps malfunctioning. I, I think that, that that's not a storyline that you really want to... Uh, pursue from like an allegorical perspective but i, I that, that's just one thing that popped in my head about kind of a sci-fi conceit that could happen maybe i don't know in picard season two as they address Gollum picard and him being in his new body i don't think they actually will i, I think they just kind of want to forget about that though yeah well they do have the line where they talk about this technology um was not necessarily successful most of the time so it seems like gray is one of the few that would have these bodies going forward um so I don't know if Discovery will introduce some sort of issue there. Like, I, I'm hoping they just kind of go, once we've got Grey and the form we'll have in the, you know, this episode and the next episode, we can just move forward and actually develop Grey as a character and explore his journey going forward. I think that's way more interesting. But it seems almost like they've written themselves in a little bit of a, um, you know, a, almost like a teaser potentially for problems in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, if we want to jump over to all is possible, unless maybe uh, any final thoughts on your part, feel free to interject. But I, I, I can appreciate that they are working hard on this theme that they want to convey this season, which I think they were unsuccessful last season. Uh, recall that in season three, um, they wanted it to be about connection. 
But I think they realized that they weren't effectively conveying that throughout the season, or at least in a compelling manner, because by the end, you literally have Michael Burnham doing her final captain's log, screaming at the screen, what the world needs now is connection. Connection (laughs) is what connects us. Connection, connection, connection. Here, you know, instead of just banging our heads in the final moments about that, uh, they, they keep bringing up this thread of uncertainty. And I like this theme. Uh, in that, like, we're in this pandemic era where there's so much uncertainty. We, we even have this new Omicron uh, uh, variety um, that is uh, emerging, and there's just uncertainty over that as well. And so as long as we, you know, we have those few weeks, you know, back in uh, the summer where we thought we were getting things under control, then the Delta variant emerges. Then everybody's all vaxxed up. Uh, cases are going down, at least uh, here where we live in uh, British Columbia. And now this Omicron threat kind of emerges. And it's all this uncertainty about, like, when will life start feeling a little bit more normal again? And I I do like that they're pursuing this. I I hope that it kind of uh, once again sticks the landing by the finale. But so far, I I do appreciate what they are trying to convey. And they continue to do that. Uh, Even with, like, Tilly's storyline here about, like, how she needs to get out of her comfort zone. Um, I have to say, I don't like Tilly's storyline. In this episode, I, I I thought it was very cringeworthy with uh, those bratty kids hmm. who really just needed to learn a lesson. It seems like every single trite Starfleet cadet storyline we've already um, seen in Star Trek before. But uh, what about your thoughts on uh, All is Possible? Where, again, we uh, have the uh, DMA more in the background and we have more kind of Navarre politics uh, going on here. I think this was my favorite of the three episodes from this batch we're reviewing today. I was maybe a little more positive on the Tilly story. I I agree with you. It was the sort of thing we've seen before with these kind of cliched characters bickering. But I uh, like the story more for just seeing Tilly in a leadership role because uh, so often we don't. I mean, I guess we got her as like a first officer last season, but like, I don't know what they gave her that much interesting to do. Whereas here, I actually liked seeing her in a survival situation. You know, I was making notes. It reminded me a little bit of like a Galileo 7 story or the Good Shepherd um, from Voyager. And I liked the way that, you know, she was problem solving throughout and it, it struck false notes. I'm not going to lie. I cringed and rolled my eyes when we got to the end and all the cadets are laughing together. Never mind that one of them is dead. <laughs> well, that, in all fairness, that was a lieutenant. That was a lieutenant. Sure. Uh, but Robin like, Academy. they were really know, chuckling it up there. And it's like mere hours ago, like one of the guys with you is dead. <laughs> It's like a little well, strange. And also, why would any of these people join Starfleet if they were so uncomfortable being around other species? Yeah, I have no idea. Yeah. Um, it also got me thinking about that short trek uh, where they're playing that very sociopathic mm. experiment on the cadet, making her think that uh, her husband was killed and she still had to make the right decision about the uh, hooded pike, the, the space hood. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, that was a, a classic. And I was actually surprised that that actress didn't show up in the cast of um, the new Strange New World show when it was announced. I was like, oh, okay, well, whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, 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 maybe she will be around in the background. I don't know. Maybe. Like, but it did seem as if they were kind of setting her up. Like, I, I agree with you. I was, I was a little confused by that. But we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. But, um, no, like, what did you think of the decision to remove Tilly from discovery and send her off to be a teacher for a handful of episodes and sorry one more note before you answer that yeah yeah i thought it was very strange that overseeing this whole cadet training was david cronenberg the man i would not put in charge of cadet training (laughs) 
I was laughing so hard at that. Suddenly he's Dr. Cavich, which I, I don't think he had been referred to as a doctor before. Uh, so he's now the happy jolly commandant of Starfleet Academy. <laughs> and he's just offering instructor positions willy nilly to like low level officers. I like willy nilly <laughs> to Tilly. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Cam. Yeah. Bravo, right there. Um, yeah, I, I certainly had the exact same reaction as you did. Okay, and now what did you think of Tilly leaving Discovery to go oh. be a teacher? I'm I'm cool with it. Like, like, I think you need to take characters into other places because I think uh, the writers realize that giving her um, the XO job and then the first time she's actually in the command seat, she loses the ship. And, and, and again, it's not really her fault, but it still makes her look like a dope. And at least she was acknowledging like um, kind of that imposter syndrome that maybe she was feeling um, early on after getting that, you know, that promotion to lieutenants. I, I, I get that. And get her off over to Starfleet. Like get her do doing something different if maybe there's not something super super compelling on the ship for her to be doing um and i'm not talking about from a narrative storytelling perspective but from her as um a character for her own per uh, personal growth i'm down for that i just think that that's what they should have done with saru this season they should have had saru off at starfleet headquarters uh because they're at starfleet headquarters like every single episode mm -hmm. you know like we are not gonna this is not gonna be like goodbye to tilly moving forward so um I'm down with this. Uh, what, what about you, Cam? I'm okay with that as long as they give her something interesting to do where it's not just like, well, Tilly's gone. And then she pops up back on the show in like, you know, eight episodes. It's like, well, I've thought about it and I'm coming back to Discovery. It's like, give us some sort of storyline. Like, what can Tilly be doing that's maybe interesting from a teaching standpoint that could contribute to future episodes? That's kind of the problem with Saru. You know, he's off the ship and we get some footage of him at a council with Sukal a couple times and... He's back on the ship. So, yeah, let's flesh that out so he's actually so Tilly's actually doing something that's interesting and contributes to the story. Although uh Kovic's reasoning for it uh was amazing. His line delivery where he says to Tilly, "You know, I took an interest in you and your crew. It wasn't just because you were a uh, in a 930-year-old starship and had never heard of the burn." And I was like, "Oh, dude. <laughs> 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 Give it up. <laughs> no one cares about the burn. That story sucked." <laughs> Let it go. Let it go. <laughs> let it go. Let it go. Uh, okay. Um, did you notice that they had that kind of um, that that swipe up, you know, from uh, th from the planet? They make their escape from the planet, and then they have that uh, swipe up from the exterior of headquarters to the academy's platform. Like I, th I just thought that was an interesting, like, kind of uh, editing or directorial choice, and that that's. We don't really get those side swipes or up swipes uh, in Star Trek, but that's more of a, uh, a Star Wars thing. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was interesting. Um, I'm open to them experimenting as they go forward. I think Discovery has made a number of experimental, you know, plays with sort of the format of Star Trek. So this works for me. If they want to be a little more bold in some of their transitions, that'd be cool. Yeah. Um, I guess the Navarre storyline is the A story here, in which, as Burnham notes, uh, she and Saru are, are flung into political theater. I, mm -hmm. I still don't understand why Vance was faking it if the idea the entire time was to have Starfleet become a third-party adjudicator when it comes to potential Brexits within uh, the Federation. Uh, I, like, I feel mixed, and this is actually the kind of storyline that should be built for me. And again, like, Cam, um, 
as with uh, episode uh, three, that this kind of felt a little listless. You know, like this one just kind of fell flat for me. Um, I, I also, I don't understand uh, how much self awareness they have when, like, they're having uh, characters deliver lines that it, it's egregious that Starfleet would be given voice within a civilian corps. So there seems to be this acknowledgement that this is kind of a paramilitary operation. So why should they be kind of the third party adjudicators about potential problems that Starfleet members would be having and, and how to deal with those? You know, like, I, I, I don't know, like, like this one was just kind of a, an oddball episode where, you know, let's just be honest. Like, I, I get the dilemma that that the uh, President Tiana was facing where you have kind of your your populist nationalistic base that didn't necessarily want to join the Federation, so how do you calm them? Um, I just, I don't know, there's something about this storyline that just didn't quite land for me. It didn't, like, it doesn't have a lot of dynamite behind it. Like, it's a pretty by-the-numbers diplomacy sort of storyline for Star Trek, but, like, I guess I just was more appreciative that they were doing this. Like, after last season, where I felt genuinely bored through so many episodes of Burn Mythology... You know, we had the Ninja Nun story in episode three, and we got to bounce over and do a diplomacy story here. I was kind of at least sitting up going, okay, I'm engaged with this to a certain degree. I liked some of the relationship building we have going on with Saru and uh, Tarina, the president, you know, of Navarre. Uh, I'm curious to see where that goes. I liked seeing Burnham, you know, talk to the Federation president, you know, and have the kind of back and forth there. I don't like the outcome of burning being uh, Burnham being like, I will be the bridge. I'm like, no, 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 no. Don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> but it just felt like the type of storytelling I was begging for last season. But, but the broader issue with Burnham being the bridge, though, is this deference hmm. to military authority. You know, like, that's that, that's what irks me. And Star Trek has a long history of doing that. Like, what if, I don't know, um... This is going to be a very, very strained sort of comparison, but I think of maybe the European Union. We had that Brexit issue, which still seems to be going on even to this day. But what if the solution was to have, and again, this is where it gets strained, but have NATO officials come in and determine how to solve disagreements among EU members like that? Yeah, it's a little strange, but I'm just like, why, why, why would military officials be the ones to determine what makes sense between? Like, I, I, I realize that there's this diplomatic core within Starfleet. We, we see so much of that with what you know Picard's day to day, what was like. You know, I get it, but like, there just there needs to be kind of this more of a church and state sort of mentality when it comes to civilian rule versus military rule, and. I don't know. They, they've always Starfleet and just writers within Star Trek have have always kind of like struggled to really draw where that line is. Where it was in Battlestar Galactica, they did not. Like they depicted it like quite well and in a very compelling manner. I feel like Discovery is often a show driven more by emotion than logic, and you just look at like a lot of the storytelling that seems to be the case. And I genuinely don't think they really grapple with, like, the um, connotations you're talking about with stories like this. Do you? Like, to me, it feels like they're looking at it as, like, Burnham is going to heal everything and we'll all be happier afterwards. Like, I don't think they're genuinely considering the real-world implications of this. 
they're thinking very more narrow character-based stuff rather than as you said kind of the broader implications of it and the broader implications are just like well this is problematic you know and i'm just kind of like you know like we've discussed this before it just seems as if discovery too often kind of scratches the surface of Mm -hmm. uh issues that would have been uh drawn into much deeper on say another series of, of star trek well you know like if you had the same sort of story on tng they really would have dug into it especially if you've got picard in the burnham role like it would not be this clean cut the way that this presents it and this also felt like and i know it's not the case but like you think of the way this show was set up with burnham being this human who was raised on vulcan and it feels like it's engineered to bring her to this specific position to be negotiating peace and i don't think that's the case considering the tumultuous behind the scenes and just the chaos for those first handful of seasons that i don't think that's the case by the time you get to season four this was all engineered from day one but it just it feels like it was i know um so a couple final points uh i want to make on this episode and this is it's kind of a weird question but i think it's a very important one um are gray and adira are are they intimate at, in that like they seem more like friends not lovers like from my perspective like that's just what i'm picking up i i, I have no recollections of them kissing like uh, just as, as an example um there, and look i i'm not I, there are some relationships where intimacy kind of falls by the wayside i get it but i i, I wonder if the fact that I can't necessarily remember it, maybe it's happened once or twice. And I, but it's weird. And like, you'd think that I, I have more vivid memories of, say, Worf and Jadzia being sharing intimate moments. I'm not, I'm not talking necessarily just about like sex, but it's it just, I don't know what to make of like um, the constitution of, of their romantic relationship where they seem more buddy buddy than anything else. It almost feels more like a spiritual connection than anything else. Yeah. But like, I, but they call each other boyfriend, yeah. girlfriend. They do, yeah, yeah. So, um, or, or at least, but, I'm sorry, Adira, Adira has described Gray as their boyfriend. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how uh, Gray has described Adira, though. Yeah, um, yeah, it's, I don't really get it, but, like, it's also in the past, it was, you know, Gray was obviously in a very different form than now, so, like, maybe that's a story we'll see explored going forward? But like, why not even like a yeah. kiss in this episode where Gray has his body now? But don't you notice there's like very little of that with like Burnham and Book as well now? Yeah, but you know, I I know for a fact that they are intimate. Yeah, I don't know that for a fact with Gray and Adira. No, that's very true. Which I I wonder if that that's one of my concerns about them kind of biffing this very important transition storyline and depicting, um, I you know, non-binary trans couple, um. And normalizing it you know and i think that's like i i i hope they normalize it but i i i don't want them to treat this relationship with kid gloves like they should be depicted as any relationship would in which it has its ups and downs well they did a really good job with culber and stamets out of the gate and i think that's yeah. something you can look at and say there's no reason you can't do that with these two characters as well yeah uh, another question um how did ensign tall become an ensign um didn't go through academy from what i understand i don't have an answer for this <laughs> yeah it got me thinking after we saw this uh, academy storyline i was just like huh 
And wasn't Tal like already an ensign by the end of season three of Discovery? Did we see that, or am I? No, you know what? I I I take that back. Or I don't know. What was your recollection? Uh, it's season three is somewhat of a blur to me. I yeah, I'm not sure. I'm I'm thinking about that last, just that last moment, whether we saw Tal in a Starfleet uh, uniform or not when Burnham walked out to the bridge as captain. I'm, um, I can't. Yeah, I I I think so. I think so. Okay. Okay, it's because leading up to that, like, Tal had been, okay, they grew up on a generational ship, they then ended up on Earth in, as a 16-year-old in the Earth Defense Force, somehow, Hmm. (laughs) okay, and now they're an ensign in Starfleet without going through the Academy, like, maybe, I don't know, they had to take a couple, uh, get, I, I don't know, some of those GED equivalent courses or something like that. I I don't know. It's just, it's one of those things that the writers just don't seem to want to touch on. Maybe just getting into Starfleet's a lot easier now. You look at yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> the, um, the cadets we saw in this one, you know, they're, sure. they're really desperate for cadets and ensigns. I, I believe it. Yeah. <laughs> um, any final thoughts on this? I, I do have one final thought um, about the uh, first third of the season, but just any final thoughts on all is possible. I do just want to mention that I am really enjoying the Culber um, therapy session scenes. Yeah. I just think Wilson Cruz is fantastic in these. And I think, you know, when you go back to TNG, there's some great Troy counselor moments. And it's a lot more interesting to me to watch Culber doing these, you know, um, psychology um, meetings than a lot of the medical stuff they're giving him to do. I think... Culber was uh, responsible for one of my favorite storylines uh, season long in uh, the previous season. And I so far, he the stuff he's doing, I, I find it far more compelling than what I'm seeing a lot of the other characters up to. Uh, yeah, I as much as we complained about the manner in which they uh, brought him back to life through like wizard's magic, hmm. um, he, he is actually delivering quite well as a character. So I can I, I can live with that. Yeah, so um, one other note I had was we had at the end of this Saru going to uh, President Tarina about learning Vulcan meditation. Tyler, is neuropressure on the horizon? (laughs) Yeah, but we're going to see Saru's bare butt instead. Is that? Uh Uh-huh. Okay. (laughs) Yes. Okay, Cam. Let's get that fan art going right now. Well, do you remember when they did the um, decon gel? They would always like chicken out and not give us flocks, for example. They'd be like, no, no, no. Yeah. We've got to put like the beautiful people in the um, decon gel scenes. It's like, no, we need finally payback for them not doing the flocks decon gel. We need the Saru neuropressure. Just for uh, listeners that may not recall or may not have watched Enterprise uh, season three, but there were a lot of uh, Vulcan neuropressure scenes uh, that got a little bit... Uh, uh, spicy uh, that were between Trip and to Paul, um, and uh, we, we saw one of those characters uh, bare bums. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So uh, who knows what the future could hold for yeah. Saru and, and uh, President Tarina? <laughs> I can't wait for the fan art. Just for the fan art. Um, so, so okay. Well, one last thing uh, for me. Um, we had a name drop of Zora. That is a name that we haven't heard since the Calypso short trek, and we were debating mm. recently whether Calypso was just going to be written off and forgotten about. Uh, seems as if they want to address Zora and Calypso, and I think they were kind of telegraphing that with the uh, the dots last season. And, um, you know, uh, I, I, 
this these are one of the the threads that kind of uh irritates me and that it doesn't really seem to make sense and it seems as if they are going to jam this uh square peg in a round hole no matter what so i don't know wait and see i'm not going to sweat it too much but it is it's something of note right in uh this uh first third of the season they're very relaxed about their ship's computer becoming sentient and naming itself <laughs> yes that that is curious I mean, if I had like a super powered um, spaceship that could be very dangerous if it fell into the wrong hands and my computer is suddenly becoming sentient, I'm a little concerned. Not if you're on Farscape. Mm, okay, I've never seen Farscape, so I'll take your word for it. Oh, uh, I thought you were a, a big uh, podcast, uh, sci-fi, everything, Cam. Uh, Battlestar Galactica and all, right? I mean, I'm just too busy with Earth Final Conflict right now to pay attention to other things. Well, uh, you keep running on a loop. I, I get it. So, I know. do. And Andromeda. It's never the final conflict. There's always one to come when you keep rewatching <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> yeah, it's always like the penultimate conflict. That's right. That's right. Okay, so overall, it's weird to think we're already one third of the way through this season. Um, They're kind of doing things that I like. I don't know if the execution is quite there, but so far I'm pleased with where they're going. Although it was actually episode five of season three in mm -hmm. which we have the seed vault. And that's where we determined that the show really started to lose the thread. And from season, uh, from episode five on, it just, it, you know, that, 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 uh, the seams became very apparent and came became looser and looser and uh, we'll have to see where it goes from here i just i hope that from here on out it's not going to be like dma is the a story yeah because when you looked at episode four of season three it was the introduction of adira and gray and that was my favorite episode of that season and so i was in for a steep fall after that one and so when i looked at this group of four i said yeah i'm liking that they are shifting it up a bit. They're not just focusing everything on these arcs. Um, I'm hopeful we'll get some interesting standalone stories this season. But I am just always kind of waiting nervously for the gravitational anomaly to come and consume us all and everything that's happening on this show for the rest of the season. Yeah. Um, I will uh, put you on the spot, but I'll go first. Uh, I'm going to rank the episodes so far, one or third of the way through. So I'll give you a moment to think about that while I go through mine. But uh, number one for me is episode one, Kobayashi Maru. Uh, number two for me is All is Possible, which just aired, uh, episode four. Number three for me is episode three, Choose to Live. And episode number four for me, or I guess rank number four for me, it would be number two episode of the season the anomaly so one four three two one four three two for me you know what that's almost my exact order um i agree with you that like two is the weakest and three is just above it i'm kind of up in the air with one and four um the tilly stuff worked for me fairly well so like at the moment that one's kind of maybe bumping that one into number one but it's very close to the premiere like, I don't think there's a big gap in quality between those two episodes. I would just say, uh, in a vacuum, like, we watched the premiere episode, and uh, it made us, you know, uh, cautiously optimistic about where it would go from there. And I, I wonder if some of that uh, cautious 
optimism ha has kind of dissipated a little bit with some of the critiques we've made. But just in a vacuum, I, I, I feel comfortable saying that episode one was my favorite so far this season. Right. I had a question for you, actually. When you watch season three Discovery, or as we're watching it now, season four, does it feel like the same show you watched the first two years? No. And yeah. maybe we can have a discussion kind of pinpointing that because uh, it's it, it's hard for me to articulate at this very moment why that is. But it definitely does seem like a, like a different show. And I don't think it's just the time travel stuff. No, I agree. And I can't exactly nail down either why it does feel different. But it does when I think about um, especially like season two, the Pike stuff and everything. Like I feel like what I'm getting now just I don't know. We'll have to explore that in the future because I can't figure it out. Maybe that's something that really won't become clear until we wrap season four. I don't know. But it is something that I've really thought about in terms of obviously my feelings on season three, but just like sitting through these four recent episodes being like, this just feels very different from when I was watching Discovery, you know, in 2016 or whatever it was or 17 when I was watching seasons one and two. I know. I know. Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe I'll just point to something that uh, Janine Smith, a uh, former guest on the show, had mentioned. But there, there's a certain gravity to, say, J Jason Isaac's performance and Anson Mount's performance mm -hmm. that maybe we haven't necessarily had in the captain's seat. Uh, and I like, uh, as actors, both Doug Jones and SMG, but I know what she's saying. Maybe some of that gravity is lost with their respective departures and maybe we just benefited from having two very notable anchors uh two seasons in a row and we just didn't realize it yeah that's entirely possible too yeah so well we'll have to see how season four shakes out because like right now season four feels a lot like season three like the storytelling's different yeah. i'm liking that they're shifting the focus but just in terms of tone and feel I feel like I'm watching the same kind of Star Trek I got in season three. So I wonder if this at the end of the day could turn into a early TNG versus later TNG where once they struck their vibe, they stuck to it. And I'm not bringing quality into this, just more in terms of like early vibe versus later vibe. Maybe that's what Discovery will be going forward. Yeah, that you know, that could just be the delineation point. So I, yeah, mm -hmm. we'll, we'll, we'll have to know for sure uh when we get to the series finale in a couple years i guess exactly okay so i think on that note our assignment is complete if you enjoyed listening to this podcast we want to hear from you jump on over to the facebook page at facebook.com slash subspace pod tyler what are we doing next time well, I think you and I kind of touched the surface on this, but we want to dig even deeper. But we're going to have a wide-ranging discussion about the nature of Starfleet. Cam, WTH is Starfleet. WTH. <laughs> and we're talking about its mandate. It's both kind of diplomatic in nature, paramilitary in nature, as well as scientific in nature. And there's a whole lot of discipline issues going on here. And I think we want to have a discussion about what Starfleet ha is meant to represent and how its nature has changed quite dramatically from series to series. I'm looking forward to this one because we are Starfleet, Tyler. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Yes. Not... <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. You can, of course, find us on the Twitter I'm at Cam. V is in Vance's Symphony Analogy Smith. You can find me at Reportin. That's R-E-P-O-R-T-O-N. N as in Navarre, political theater. Okay, so until next time, the arena is closed.
Transfer complete. 